Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Six-year-old me used to go to the public library and I would study, not even read, study, mesmerized by National Geographic. And I, I have a super hyper creative mind and... Somehow in my mind, I was like, I am going to grow up and I'm going to become a lady explorer. That is our amazing guest today, Mijan Salitho Baez, who fulfilled her prophecy to become a lady explorer. And one of the ways she's been traveling the world over the last 15 years is by utilizing artist residencies. What is an artist residency? Artist residencies are creative communities for creative people. Typically, they're residential And typically, you have a studio space where you can practice all over the world. Now, you might be surprised to discover these opportunities, they're not just for quote-unquote artists as we normally think of them, painters, sculptors, and the like. These are for writers, psychologists, people that work within all sorts of different disciplines. And Mijan's here to give us a full breakdown on which resources to use to find these opportunities to travel the world and much more. And look, before you rule this out for yourself... Let me say one thing. I truly believe it never hurts to learn about a new way you can travel the world. You never know what the future holds. So it's good to have another tool in your tool belt of world travel. And also, that's just one part of this much wider conversation as a professional speaker. Mijan shares valuable, actionable advice on that topic. She talks about how to stay grounded, the story behind why travel was the best parenting decision she ever made, why small acts of kindness are such a big deal, and so much more as we finish out Wild Ways to Travel Week. I'll explain why I included this episode in a moment. For now, I want to say welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience, as we wrap up Wild Ways to Travel Week. I hope you enjoyed it. And you might be wondering, why did I include this episode? We're talking about artist residencies as one part of this show, as you heard at the top. And that was intentional. You know, to me, wild 
is, is different for everybody. Everybody has their own standards for what feels wild. You don't need to go on a death-defying adventure to travel in a, quote, wild way. And you or I shouldn't measure ourselves against someone else's travel accomplishments anyway. And I think a wild way to travel for you might just be to take off somewhere new and have a totally different type of experience that puts you out of your comfort zone, uh, perhaps puts you in touch with new groups of people or challenges your intellect, creativity, or ingenuity in some ways. There are all sorts of ways to define what makes a wild way to travel. And that's why I wanted to bookend this week with a new way that we haven't explored here on the podcast, which is artist residencies. And because Mijan does such an incredible job breaking this down, you can see that these these opportunities to explore the world are, are right in front of us. And on the surface, we shouldn't necessarily write them off just because we think they're for somebody else and not for us. And I think that's one lesson I pulled out of this conversation. Of course, as I mentioned, we have a much wider conversation just around travel and life and all the stuff we do here on the show. But I wanted to just kind of share that as we go into this episode. And if you'd like to stick around on the back end, I found this quote where if you just pull out one word, you can use it as a fill in the blank type of quote that can help you silence your inner critic. And I think this is a cool, it was a Vincent Van Gogh quote. So stick around for that. And if you want to keep in touch, sign up, over at zerototravel.com slash newsletter. You can get my free newsletter. It goes out every week, and I welcome you into the community over there. For now, thanks for being a part of this listening community, for making the show a part of your day, and enjoy my chat with Mijan. I will see you on the other side, my friend. Jean Salito Baez. That's like a, that's got a nice ring to it. My goodness. <laughs> Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here and with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> you are indeed amongst friends here, especially as a fellow traveler. I mean, you, we were just talking before we hopped on and you were like, oh, there's a bit of background noise here. I'm in Ecuador. I'm like, oh, we like background noise here on this <laughs> podcast. We want to hear background noise from Ecuador. <laughs> What's going on there? What are you, what are you doing there? I, I have a Fulbright Specialist Award, and I am uh, posted at Universidad de las Artes, University of the Arts. It's the country's uh, constitutional mandated university that's fairly new within the last decade. Um, and I'm helping them create a new pedagogical model and move that forward to completion, as well as the interwoven curriculum for all of the university courses to follow um, as just like the guide, the touch point. Yeah, I know. Wow. <laughs> and then okay. after that, uh, because I'm also an expert speaker with the U.S. Department of State, I'll be doing some programs with the consulate here before I go back uh, to the States. You are a person of many talents. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get your expert advice on some of this stuff because I have speaking on the list. Because yes, as you said, you are indeed an expert speaker. So I'm like, all right, well, this will be a good time to get speaking tips. And then you've been traveling through these artists' mm -hmm. residencies, so mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. there's a lot oh, to yeah. talk about it's, here. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, and it's all my favorite. So yes, nice. ask away. Is this in Quito? Is that where you are? Or no, I'm in Guayaquil. Okay, how long are mm -hmm. you there for? 
so Fulbright specialist programs, those awards are anywhere as short as two weeks to as long as six. And then because of the expert speaker programs with the consulate, I'm here a little longer. And then after that, I have my personal uh, travel that's been already pre-approved. So I get to go to the Galapagos Islands, which has been a dream. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Are you nomadic or do you have a home base? I am Slowmatic. My Slow-matic. home base, yes, my home base for many, many years has been in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, However, okay. by the time this podcast, well, maybe I don't know when you're going to actually push it out. I am actually winding down my home base time in Santa Fe, and I'll be going back home to pack up. And then moving on to my next fellowship, which is in Los Angeles. It's a blended. I have a uh, Mellon Foundation Fellowship at the Huntington Library to research speculative fiction genius Octavia Butler's archives and make some new work. And then um, at the exact same time, because a girl has to have a place to live, I have a residency in Santa Monica. So that's where I'll be living. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so cool. So I mean, yeah, you're going to one of the I mean, it could be one of the more expensive places to live for yes. sure. And you're going to be able to just not, be there yeah. for free, I guess, right? Or get well, paid. So, so I will be paid from the fellowship. However, I do have to pay for the residency. The deal with the residency is though, as you just said, like New York, LA, San Francisco, those places are so expensive in the States. And artist residencies typically are either free or reduced cost. And in my case, it's reduced cost. That's what it is for everyone. However, my fellowship goes above and beyond paying for my living cost at the residency. So yeah, a little bit of a trick. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to understand. I want people to understand a bit more about what you do because you you just threw some stuff at us and I'm like, all right, (laughs) let me, let's... Let's get our heads around this because yeah, it's it's really cool. So you wrote in the in the little bio you sent me that you moved between the and I'm quoting you, you moved between the realms of oral history, art, media, and ritual to produce large scale cultural projects and live events. And I was like, that that's cool. That, like, that could be, so be a lot things. of different yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. ritual was a word that caught me too. Cause I was like, that's a really interesting word to have in there. And I, I don't know, I just can you kind of explain to us what what that means. This is your this is what you do. So yeah, it's what I do. It's what I do. I think the easiest way is to say how I started. And then the current iteration. So I have a doctorate in international and multicultural education. And I needed to do some research. That's like the whole point of a social science doctoral degree, you must learn how to be a researcher in my case, qualitative research. And I thank God I had finally, because it took a few iterations. So for anybody who's in grad school, it's like, here's a a moment of hope. You will get through it. (laughs) I, I finally landed with a great dissertation chairperson who also was the daughter of a a father who was a multimedia producer. And she said to me, and her name is Dr. Shabnam Korala Asad. 
at University of San Francisco. She she sits me down and she's like, Mijan, we got to get you through this program. Because I'm like, of course, I'm slowmatic. I'm taking this meandering path. I'm traveling all over the place. I've moved out of the country. I've moved out of state. And she says, you know, you're a story person. You need to do qualitative research that is story-based. That's going to be the way to get you through. There's this group called Voice of Witness. They do oral history trainings. I think it would be a perfect fit. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, And so I became an oral historian. That's where I got my one-week intensive training. And then I followed it up with a year of mentorship um, with Dr. Amy Starcheski, who I cannot love more. Um, She's still in my life. We're still in each other's lives. And fast forward, like I get through the program. Um, I've done my first oral history big project. You know, it's across northern New Mexico, Pine Ridge Reservation, South Dakota, northern California. And I, (laughs) being me, I'm like, I need to keep practicing. I need to practice while I'm learning. And so I said yes to the very first thing that came my way, which was uh, a women's economic justice forum, national forum. They said, we really would love to collect these stories because we're starting to think maybe we'll get an institute going or like something, but we need to collect these stories. I'm like, great. So I'm learning, learning, learning. And as soon as I'm in my last semester and I'm about to defend my dissertation, I am recruited for a media arts educational organization's executive director position. I say, yes, I do something very nutty that no one should do. I do not recommend. (laughs) And I become a first-time executive director while I am graduating. It's like, I didn't know there's this thing called revisions for a dissertation that happened. And I had, I think, three or four weeks to get them done while I became a new ED. And so a a new executive director of a small nonprofit meant I had to learn how very quickly how to do all of the things. And one of the best outcomes, though, that supported me as an independent oral historian, which supported me in running a small business of the cultural work, ritual work, story work that you're like, what is all this? I had to learn how to fundraise. I had to learn specifically how to write grants quickly, how to manage them very efficiently and effectively and honestly and ethically. Um, And I also had to understand the programming calendar and how all of that fit together and managing teams. And so One of my best joys of that job, actually, was being the person to foster the collaborations with educational institutions, higher ed institutions. And we had partnerships with all of the higher ed institutions in um, that area of northern New Mexico. We also had a radio program that I was executive producer on. Um, So like, here was another editorial calendar (laughs) to manage at the same time. And it just helped me. I mean, first off, it burnt me out very quickly. Like I was in and out of that position in less than two years flat, uh, which is like something that happens, unfortunately, to first time women of color and people of color EDs not having the supports um, and being stretched too thin. 
However, it gave me the hard skills to hit the ground running as a small business owner and doing my story work through story-rich keynotes and doing my story-rich work through cultural production of events, large-scale events and large-scale oral history, civic engagement, public art projects. So who I partner with now, like fast forwarding through all of that, I partner with national policy institutes. I I partner with the United States government because the Fulbright Specialist Award, I think one thing I love to share about that, people hear Fulbright and they automatically think, you know, the student program, those awards, or the ETA award, which is English teaching assistantship, or a research award for the professionals and the artists out there who might be listening. The Fulbright Specialist Award is really for niched, and I, I, I don't use the word lightly, and I know I keep throwing it around, but it's just because it's all of these folks' terminology, but niched experts people who have niched expertise in a topic and a discipline. And so, for example, the project that I'm doing right now, I'm basically a consultant for this university as they have hit sort of a growth edge in trying to solidify their new pedagogical model and the interwoven curriculum across the university And I happen to have all of this expertise through many, many years of building programs, building curriculum, and also understanding how pedagogical models work and don't work (laughs) in practice. Um, And and I have all the intercultural expertise too. So So where does travel fit in for you personally? Because I I suppose you could take this skill set and apply it to probably a, a, a myriad of positions in, say, Santa Fe or whatever base you want to choose to live in, but you're choosing to leverage your education, your skill set to travel. And I'm just curious, like, yeah, was that something you always wanted to do with this? Was that sort of just accidental? It's just kind of, that. well, these things are offered all over the place, so you're traveling or very intentional? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's... What's the deal with that? (laughs) (laughs) It started off as six-year-old me used to go to the public library and I would study, not even read, study, mesmerized by National Geographic. And I I have a super hyper creative mind. And somehow in my mind, I was like, I am going to grow up and I'm going to become a lady explorer. That is an actual job. And I know that there's going to be a classified ad like this. I'm dating myself now, right? Like I was like, there's going to be a classified ad in the back of this magazine. And this lady explorer is going to need an apprentice. And I even like, I remember I typed on our old school typewriter. Well, we had an electric typewriter, right? And I was like, I am making a lady explorer apprentice resume because I am going to be ready And like, I just had this idea since I was a little girl that I was going to travel all over the world. And I wasn't clear on how or obviously what a real legitimate job posting might be or description, but I just knew I was going to be ready. That's what I was going to do with my life. And then fast forward to 15-year-old Mijan has a best friend who we're still friends to this day, Tendo Mutanda. Um... 
she went to Dominican Republic as an exchange student and she came home and she was like, Mijan, you have to do it. You have to do it. And I was like, yeah, but my dad and this and that, you know, like all of the like real legitimate excuses. And she was like, no, 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 no. We are totally going to get my mom to talk to your dad because they were friends. And she was like, and tell him that it's not dangerous. And, you know, this is the program to go with and that our school supports it. And I was like, okay, but the application, I'm not exactly sure. And she was like, nope, shoulder to shoulder. We're going to do it in the computer lab together. And that is actually what set me up because I I used to teach um, undergrad and I used to, (laughs) I was so grateful to the department director for letting me totally change the syllabus a little bit, or not change the syllabus, but for saying like, okay, it's a contemporary issues course. I want to teach young students, especially from marginalized backgrounds, how to study abroad, because it's one of the first times as an adult where you can go with support and a lot of ease if you have a great study abroad program on your campus they will help you with your visa. They will tell you how much money you need. They will support in the event of an emergency. You have a structure where you can point your parents to and be like, yes, this is legitimate. Like, I'm not just, you know, going to go off and never return home. And so that's how I got my start. And I continued by just choosing that as my graduate school <laughs> path. And then my career opportunities. I love it. By the way, if you listen to the show, you know that Lady Explorer is an official job. (laughs) 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 So I believe you were definitely onto something. You were just ahead of the trends, Mijan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. 
so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there. And that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself. And that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear at such a young age, because my daughter's seven right now. And, and you know, I can, oh! I, I, I can see, you know, kind of the wheels turning, but you never know how it's going to end up. But you at such a young age, kind of having that intentionality behind travel and just thinking about that's something you wanted to do. And then realizing that intentionality these years later what a good friend shoulder to shoulder there like being like no we're gonna do this like sometimes it takes yeah just one other person to to kind of believe in you or to just force the issue and help you push past like a fear or you know in your case maybe not sure if you're going to get some your family on board with it and things like that so that's uh powerful stuff well and all the steps and also what i really want to add to that is i watched it play out intergenerationally. So I, as I was finishing up my doc degree, I did the prelim research. I moved with my kids as a new single mom to Brazil. So at a very young age, my children, we bust and backpacked through Mexico because I knew it was cheaper to fly from Mexico than to originate the travel from the States. And also, I just was like, let's let me show my kids as many countries as possible. So we spent almost two months just busing and backpacking through Mexico, um, and then flying to Salvador da Bahia, Brazil, for the semester of research. And I, I dropped my son Isaiah off at college years later. So maybe he was eight or nine when we were going through Mexico and Brazil. Fast forward a decade. He's 18, doing the drop-off. We do this ritual. Ritual is huge in my family and my practice. And I'm like, you know, what do you want? I have a daughter, his sister, Indira. What do you want the sibling as well as me, your parent, to let go of that you've noticed in our growth and living together? And what do you hope? I know, I was like, and what I'm an intense person, right? Okay, I was like, and what do you really hope that this person like leans into, grows into, embraces a bit more as we are all doing our individual, you know, adventures now moving off? And the one beautiful thing that I hold with me from that day of saying these things like very intimately with each other is my son said to me, when you took us to Mexico and Brazil, that was one of the best parenting moves that you ever made. And I was like, whoa. And I said, why? And he was like, because it showed me that the world is open to me. It showed me as a black boy growing into becoming a black man, that there are many places that I'm safe, that my home country might not say are safe places. It just depends. And it depends on how you're moving through these places. And then fast forward, I would say it was maybe three years after that, my son saying, I'm going to study abroad, I'm going to study abroad. And then he doesn't apply and he doesn't apply. And I'm like, what's going on? You know, this is a family value. Like, 
This is the easiest time. Go into the world. Do it. I'm here. I'm supporting. And he doesn't until I talk to one of our neighbors. Uh, we lived in the, the same neighborhood as the neighborhood school. There, there are these kids, this family. The son is a year older than my daughter, and the daughter is a year older than my son. And this woman is my co-conspirator, Maria, another international educator. And she says, okay, Brooke, her daughter, has traveled all over the world through study abroad programs, so many countries across high school, university, grad school. And she's like, we're going to just grab Isaiah up. We're going to do a party at our house. And Brooke is going to talk to him. Brooke is gorgeous, I might add. Like, you always have to have some sort of... <laughs> like, uh, she's going to hold his attention, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, one million percent. And so Brooke says to him, hey, you really got to do it. What are the countries? And he's like, well, Amsterdam, Morocco, Australia, I don't know. And she's like, I've gone to two or three of those. I, You know, all you have to do is go to the study abroad office and wait a minute, your best friend, Van... Like, he'll go with you. And then Van jumps in on this and he's like, bro, I'm going to walk with you to study abroad myself if I have to. If I hear that you haven't gone by the next week or two, I'm going to actually find you on campus and I'm going to take you. So I'm saying all of this long-winded story to just share sometimes, and it's totally fine. Sometimes you got to find that person who loves you, who cares about you, who's already done it. And either is going to encourage slash be your accountability person or help you actually do, take the steps. Like it's not a bad thing. It's totally, I want to normalize it. It's totally normal. Totally normal. I can tell you work in the realm of stories because I'm getting the chills just from you telling that story. I'm getting like emotional. And no, I think that's, that's great. It's a great reminder of, you know, we're always in the position to either seek out that friend that's going to support us or be the friend that's going to walk your friend to the study abroad office or whatever version of that you think your friend needs. These words and these actions, they matter so much. And you, you think uh, this is a you know, small thing in the grand scheme of things, take a little time to, to walk somebody, walk with somebody to an office, but it means the world. So I'm guessing Isaiah did end up studying abroad. Amsterdam? Yeah. And then, so like the bow on top of all of it, and he fell in love there. He, he loves it. He actually wants to move back. Um, and I'm like, Amsterdam, really? I hadn't been. And so fast forward three years, two years, something like that. His kid sister, undergrad, she decides it's my turn. I'm going to study abroad, applies London, Paris, doesn't get London, gets Paris. And my son like takes me... I don't know. I How I didn't see this coming, I have no idea. Why I'm going to describe it like I'm being bamboozled when clearly I was not. I don't know about that either. But my son says, hey, she got in. Indira is her name. Queen I is how we refer to her sometimes. And he was like, we've got to drop her off. We dropped her off at school. You guys dropped me off at school. You actually went to New York with me on the way to Amsterdam. Like it's what our family does. We've traveled with you, mom. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what does that actually mean? And I said, okay, well then actually I do have some work in Europe. It's around that time. And so I spent five weeks two of them all together as a family. And then the other three, for work, 
We went to Amsterdam for a week and saw where my son went to school, why he likes that place, like why he loves it um, is super clear now. There are more bicycles than humans. And he's just an active kind of kid. Well, not even he's a pro bodybuilder. So (laughs) it makes sense. Um, And then we dropped off my daughter and moved her into her dorm in Paris into her studio that's facing the Eiffel Tower. And all got to be mesmerized by that. So it feels very full circle. Very full circle. You sound like the coolest mom. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I really am. (laughs) And modest too, right? It's like, oh, yeah. yeah." Yes. Yes. I love it. You should claim claim it. it. That's amazing. I mean, well, what a gift to give them. And I mean, you see it it paid dividends later when you had that talk and and that was the thing of all the things that could be said the trip you took them on how old were they when you took them on the trip through mexico i'm just curious my daughter was 4 and my son well so then he had to be 9 yeah 4 and 9 so then they did immersion in brazil my daughter went to brazilian preschool my son went to the jesuit k to 12 school because i was like i'm not going to do international like American school, they get that in the States. (laughs) We're here. Let's do this. You know, let's learn the language. And so actually to that point, my daughter totally like, yeah, transparent, (laughs) good, still good mom moment. Within the first three days of my daughter moving into the dorm, starting school, all the things, having to do the Metro on her own, she had never taken French classes. And you hear the lilt in my, my voice where I'm going with this. And she says to me, this is so hard. People only speak French to me, even if they know English. I want to go home. I'm going to maybe transfer back to the States. And I said, you know what? I am not a good person to process this with. I have a feeling that there's a lot of emotion here. I would really encourage you to talk to all of your friend group, your best friends, whatever friends you make, post about it on Instagram, whatever you want to (laughs) do. But I've just spent quite a bit of money (laughs) and I am deeply invested in this. And so let's check in in another month. Let's do monthly check-ins about your decision-making process. I support whatever it's going to be because it's your life. And, and I'm just not a good person, like in the play by play for the first six weeks. And then my son, thank God, chimes in and he's like, you know what, when we were in Brazil, you learned Portuguese first, because you were so little. And and then I chime in and I'm like, yes, because you know, my doc background, I'm like, you know, I understand very well, um, literacy and language acquisition. And I was like, honey, a four-year-old brain learning a foreign language versus a 20-year-old brain learning a foreign language, like night and day. You had it easy. I had it the hardest. That's why I was frustrated. And so then my son chimes in again, and he's like, yeah, you just got to get through the first eight weeks. Like After that, everything's going to click. You'll know your people. You'll know the places you love to go to. You know, you'll have a rhythm and cadence to your days and your weeks. You'll know how much, you know, downtime you actually need while you're learning another language and being in a new place. And I was like, oh, 
I like literally, it's one of those times where I'm like, don't cry in front of the kids, but this is the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Just so proud. I mean, it's uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm jotting down parenting notes during this. (laughs) These are great. No, really. I mean, what a, it sounds like you guys have such a nice uh, relationship together. We're close. We're really close. About all these things and um, do check-ins and that sort of thing. And, you kind of briefly mentioned the ritual, the, again, that word coming up being important to you. And I'm just curious what what role ritual plays in, in your life. You could say your family life or your personal life or academic oh, life. It's grounding. It's, uh, you know, I think the way I can describe it is even when I have been a teacher years past, um, the facilitator, when I do speaking engagements across the board, I begin with the ritual because for me and what I've found to be true with my learners and audience, when we have a grounded beginning entry point that anchors us to the time and each other, everything flows. And my nervous system is dialed way down it's not hyped up. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm afraid to hit the stage. I'm afraid of what might come out of my mouth. Or It's like, it just, it's like having a dial, a tuner, and it just dials everything down for me. And I have to say, personally, as a speaker, you know, I've talked about it here and there, but not very much. I got to a place where I was having out of body experiences and I didn't, I tried, I asked like healer friends and midwives and just anybody who I could get some advice. I'm like, I need this to stop because this is frightening to be in front of a live audience, hundreds of people, and I don't know where I'm going. And then the next moment, is the end of my talk and people are standing up and applauding, but I don't know what I've said. Like, I don't want that. Yeah, I was like, I don't want that. That's not that doesn't <laughs> that is the definition of ungrounded. You know what I mean? And and again, I was asking all these people for help and advice and people would give help and advice, but it just wasn't helping me until <laughs> and I know this is going to sound a little nutty, but until I met this burlesque dancer teacher who said, you know, I think you're connecting with the whole group and not people one on one at a time. And it's overwhelming you. And I think you need to start doing some practices before you hit the stage, as well as integrate into your practice on the stage where you're helping yourself to just sort of five, four, three, two, one dial down into your nervous system. And so that's really where oddly enough, ritual, something I was doing privately had to become a public thing. It makes sense to hear that practical advice like that came from somebody who's entertaining in some ways, right? On stage and and, in a different way, but that's great advice for speakers too, I guess. It's just that, just making those connections. I think so too, especially because her kind of, I mean, I haven't seen her perform, but my vision is that you know, she's doing something intimate with her body, with other people publicly. And so, and we did chat about it, like, she does need to be in control of how much to to give, basically, 
and how much to receive. And she she's responsible for that. So it was like the perfect person to receive that advice. And then I just sort of remixed it with something that a therapist took me through, um, a mindfulness practice, a sensory mindfulness practice that I actually began my talks with now. I was doing it privately before, but I was like, wait a minute, if it does this for me on the inside and it feels so good and it's so soothing and I'm no longer nervous to speak and I remain fully engaged in my body, what would happen if I share it with the audience? And it's I think it's called like the dropping anchor meditation, something like that. I, of course, do my own little spin on it, but it's basically like, you know, the five senses with me right now, what are five things that you hear? And then I pause and I give a second for people to come with that as well as me. What are the four things that you are tasting? Maybe you had breakfast already or lunch or dinner. Three what are the three things if your hands are in your lap that you feel like the sensations going through your, your body through touch of your hands, or maybe your hair wrestling in my case, my shoulders, right? And you just go through the senses like that. And it really does help people and me at the same time, connect to my body, connect to the moment, dial things down and connect to each other. And then we go forward. Wow. Uh, does uh, ritual play a regular role in your in your daily life, or? Oh, you better believe yeah, it, like, Jason. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like what? What? Um. <laughs> what's some stuff that you found helpful? Do you have like a morning ritual, or? You know the the when it plays the most is when I'm traveling because sleep can be so out of whack. I can feel like unmoored as much as I look forward to it. And I love it. It's like, ah, new people all the time, another new language. Um, And so what I have found is I do it at home and I do it on the road walking. I go through my regular morning stuff. I, you know, set my intentions. I actually have an affirmation of the day that changes every day, but it comes from a deck of cards that were gifted to me. I may write a little bit in the morning and then I have to walk. The days that I don't walk are the days, especially the first week that I'm somewhere, are the days that I'm like, where really am I? You know what I mean? Because getting into an Uber feels very similar around the world or getting, well, not always mass transit, but generally can feel like just chaos, (laughs) large scale chaos. But when I walk, I have an opportunity to say, like in this case, here I am in Guayaquil, I say hello to the doorman. I'm walking, seeing from my apartment to the university, the same sort of people, the shopkeepers in the morning, I get a chance to pop in, get a cup of coffee. And it just helps usher in. And I think a thought in my mind, the day has transitioned from my individual time and how I wake up into the day of being with the world at large and I'm ready and I'm also connected. I mean, there's a ton of value in being aware of the activities that ground you, right? In your case, walking, uh, it seems like you're very aware that that is a thing that puts you where you need to be (laughs) and making time for it. 
Yeah, what was your affirmation today? Oh, I love it because we ha- I had tech glitchy stuff and it was like, remember that this is a temporary moment. When the hiccups in the day happen, it's a temporary moment. Let it be behind you when it is behind you. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> this affirmation really- is working in real time. Yes. yes. I'm like, did I call it in or am I just mindful and now I feel good about it? We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. Let's talk about the artist residencies. Can you define what they are just so people understand? Because it's it can sound like a broad term in a way. And then I want to get into you know how they can help you travel, who they're right for, how you find them, all of the practical questions. And do you have to be like a known artist to get them and what does being an artist even mean, you know, cause there's a lot of different art forms. So, you know, help us unpack this Mijan. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's do it. One question at a time. So what are they, my understanding and my experience, artist residencies are creative communities for creative people. Typically they're residential and typically you have a studio space where you can practice all over the world. Who are they for? I mean, that's kind of the next question. Creatives. Um, And I have watched actually the residencies I've participated in over the last, I don't know, 15 years I've been doing them. Um, It can be, yes, there are obviously the very prestigious, renowned artist residencies. They want folks to have you know, large bodies of work and uh, very well-defined portfolios to share. That's one set of residencies. 
There are other residencies where, yes, well, I'll say three buckets. The second one is, yes, they also want people to have very clearly detailed, defined art practices, cultural work practices, design practices, writing practices. There's a third. They're looking for people who think creatively and are applying a creative approach to their professional body of work. I will give you an example of one that I adore, love beyond, actually two, two of the top three favorite residencies of all time, the Banff Center in Canada. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know people connected there anymore. I'm not a good person to like have a listener, you know, email and be like, and what, what was that about Banff? I don't know. I used to be faculty at Banff after I had two residencies there. And and in fact, I was faculty in the cultural leadership program. And so that was a program for people who had leadership positions, whether it was emerging or seasoned or sort of mid-career in the creative sector, in cultural institutions. However, Banff was one of, or is maybe still one of those places where there were STEM scientists there at the exact same time as indigenous performing artists, at the exact same time as indigenous tribal leaders, at the same time as people who, like, I think even didn't I see like someone who had a puppetry practice? Like, it was not about, um, uh, like opera singers all coming together. Although I'm fairly certain that they probably had an operatic residency program. It was every kind of creative and creative thinker under the sun. A second one that I can tell you is more, um, or I should say, it. how do I explain it? Well, let me just explain it. Poco a Poco in Oaxaca, Mexico is another creative residency However, I feel more confident stating that they truly want folks who have boots on the ground practice, whatever practice that that may be, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a podcaster. In fact, I can say it from the perspective of this. I've done it twice, two residencies. This residency this year of 2023, there was a New York Times journalist there was a psychoanalyst, there was a choreographer, multimedia person, um, there was a seamstress who, you know, came from a traditional background, and had switched from being an architect. Um, and so now she does fashion, eco fashion design work. And she's exploring that more and more. But again, that wasn't like her, um, like longest held background. Uh, there, where, oh gosh, um, there was an educator. They are a professor. Um, there was, there was an architect. I mean, it was just all kinds of creative people, but what I want to hone in on is the psychoanalyst who I don't think in general people would say, oh yeah, artist residency totally makes sense. This person has a creative approach to psychoanalyzing her clients. And so, and she fit in perfectly. So my recommendation and something that I do, like I, you know, I, I keep returning to these questions again and again when I do my annual visioning and it's, what do I want to learn this year? 
what do I want to share? So maybe it's like through teaching or practice, how do I want to evolve? And who do I want to grow with in terms of an ecosystem? And I apply those questions when I consider what fellowships to apply for that year and what residencies to apply for that year. And then I began doing the research of, well, okay, I understand myself through these four questions. What's going to be the best mutual match? So I think that's the part where people get tripped up. And, and I don't even mean on like an ego side of like, who's good for me. I really do mean like, because I also, what I see actually the majority of are, is the opposite, not who's good for me. I see more people feeling like, oh no, I'm not good enough for that. Or, oh no, they only want the fancy people or, and it's like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe that group. Yes, that might be true. Maybe that institution, maybe that residency, maybe that fellowship. However, if you do a deeper dive and you look at what are all possibilities that I, you, we would be a good fit for and vice versa, just off of mission statements, previous residents and fellows, I feel like we come to a clearer sense of what the folks really want and how we may be a good fit for that. That's a better approach than just straight away saying not like, like six, 15, 16 year old Mijan who said, no exchange programs. It's going to be too hard. It's like, well, let's just sit down shoulder to shoulder with the person who's actually done it. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to assess it. Yeah, that's great. I, I think, well, it is important. It has to be a fit for you. Right. And that makes it a fit and it's a symbiotic thing. I love where you went with that because the psychoanalyst, like I said, that was the perfect example. It's, it's like, this is broader than people think, I guess is the point. And that's, and that's why I think you're just highlighting that through these stories and the approach of kind of creating a match to start re your research. We can go into the sort of the research question next, but I, I would love to hear one more time, those four questions you ask, ask yourself every year, because that's really powerful stuff. And maybe uh, somebody <laughs> wants to steal that framework. <laughs> it's what do I want to learn this year? What do I want to share? And it could be, for me, it's through my creative practice and or teaching. How do I want to evolve? And I want to actually just dig a, a second to go a little deeper with that. I'm noticing, like, <laughs> there's one way to think about the lessons we learn again and again, like in our relationships, um, especially for anybody who's married or romantically partnered, where you're like, are we at this again? Really? Wow. And it's like, well, but how do I want to evolve with this? Like, how do I want to be a companion to this change in my life as opposed to an adversary, right? And maybe we want some support with that. And then how do I want to grow within an ecosystem of relationships? Those are my four annual visioning questions. I'm loving this chat. Okay. <laughs> you got you got to come visit Norway so we can do this in person. Okay. <laughs> yes. 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 I'll I'll reach out to the consulate. Yeah, and be like, "Hey, let's do an expert yes, program." Yes. Let's do it. Yep. With the advice you just shared, which I think is great, the the kind of the self-analysis and, and trying to understand 
what might be, might be a match for both sides. And we already have established that this is perhaps a more open option than people may think. So where should people then begin to kind of research these opportunities? And I know there can be like countless websites out there and things like that. But if you just have like your top two or three tips. I have. Yes, I have three for you. Number one, go to the listservs. And I'll be sure to share the links with you, Jason. Hopefully you could put them in show notes or something like that. Artistcommunities.org, they have a directory. What I want folks to know is that that's more domestic US-based. Transartist.org and Res Artists, and it's Res Artists without a T though, .org. Those are the two more international residency listservs. What you want to do is get clear. I think the step before you jump to the the yeah to the listservs is and these clearinghouses of residencies is to ask yourself: Are you going so that you can do a deep dive and produce some work? So you're like going with this intention of really hunkering down, and if you've got a play to write, you're going right, to progress okay. through that. Like coming or, out with a finished you know, product, whatever it is. Okay. Yes, yes. Or at least getting through whatever iteration or, and or I should say, are you going to relationship build? And that could be with the local community. That could be with the community of artists and creatives and thought leaders who are assembled. That could be, I think, a missed opportunity so many people don't think about is who are the staff members? Like, who maybe you know, leadership, I am, oh my gosh, I am an Aurelia devotee. Aurelia is the chef in residence at Poco a Poco. And I do this thing called Story Feast. And she was my chef for the Story Feast. And I'm like, how do I collaborate with this woman again? It, it was the, no, not the first time. I would say it was the second most meaningful Story Feast that I have done with a chef where I'm like, there's something that I've got to learn a bit more about how this person has a culinary practice that is so, so perfect for this kind of cultural production work. So I'm like, think bigger, you know what I mean? And then also go smaller when you go into the listservs and these um, clearing houses and ask yourself, you know, where do I want to be and why? Ask yourself, you know, do you need an individual studio or is a group studio okay? And I'm looking at you, even though I can't look at you, I'm looking at you writers because it's like a lot of writers really need silence and individual spaces. And so if that's important, if you have mobility um, concerns, constraints, challenges, opportunities, uh, if you're a dancer and, you know, it's a... (laughs) artist residency that says, yeah, we have a place where you can dance and you realize it's concrete floor. That might not be (laughs) the best fit. Like, you know, just thinking through those kind of things as well as Wi-Fi. I mean, the list goes on and you should be able to suss it all out through those. What I want to give is a couple of pro tip hacks. And that's to once you've decided what residencies might be a good fit, where you might be applying, look at the resident artist for the current year. And I would say the last two years as well, 
to see sort of where is this organization at and who they are accepting. And so here's the pro tip to it. How much of a great fit is that for you as well? Do you want to be with these kind of people? Dig a little deeper into their... I mean, now it's going to sound like I'm a little bit of a stalker, but dig into their social media accounts and see like, what is this person's disposition? Because you're going to be living with them. Like the residencies I go to, it's not shared like a room that you're sleeping in together. However, sometimes you'll share a kitchen or... Uh, you definitely will share um, studio space. And if you're noticing that this person is posting every other post of like they're at a rave and it's, dunks, 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 I mean, that might not be what you want. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Getting a sense of uh, who you're going to be spending a lot of time with. Uh-huh, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh-huh. <laughs> okay. How many of these have you done? Oh God, like probably 15. <laughs> I know you had another hack you were going to share, but well, okay. So I can ask you after that. Cause I want to ask you about the just experience itself. If you can kind of. Oh, yeah. the experience itself. You know, I want to say part of why I love Poco a Poco so much is because it was the first residency um, after maybe a year of the vaccines rolling out and me feeling like, okay, it's, it's okay to travel and to actually post up in a place where I'm going to be in close proximity. We're probably going to be unmasked, uh, at meals, like not even probably, I don't know how to get through a community meal without a mask on. So I just was like, you know, there was a lot of trust, a, a trust, not just in the residency, but in Oaxaca itself. Um, and they took such exquisite, great care and consideration in their role as host. What I want to say is residencies for me, well, that one in particular helped me re-enchant myself with my creative practice, and also to romance my own life again. There's, oh, this is the part, Jason, that I love. Like you wake up because you have your residency friends and you do decide to do the things together. Some things, not all the things, because I, you know, <laughs> I used to tell people and I still do, don't even be in any way, shape, or form, encouraged to even think my name on Sundays. I am an introverted person, believe it or not. I'm an extroverted introvert. And so Sundays have to be antisocial for me. Don't be inspired to even speak my name. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> and so they knew like, okay, Monday through Saturday are game. Great. So here we, it's Stina is her name. And she's still a bestie in my life. Almost two years later, we would start our days walking up the stairs. There are a gazillion stairs up to this planetarium in Oaxaca. And then we'd come back down and we, you know, had a full hour of exercise. We're ready for the day, ready for our creative practice. And because Poco has such a great, um, it's like almost like the schedule is an in-breath and an out-breath throughout the day and the week. 
we would all sit down for the community breakfast in this large, beautiful kitchen. Aurelia's playing like true crime mystery podcast and like, I don't know what telenovelas in the morning. And she's making everything from scratch and she's cracking jokes and people are dancing and singing. What a way to start your day, right? An hour of exercise, you've got your breakfast, then you go, you take your shower. It's two hours into the day already, okay? And you'd think to yourself, there is no way that I'm going to get through this 10-hour workday in four hours is what you have by the time that the actual studio start time really begins after breakfast. Because you've got breakfast, but then you've got, I forget what they call it, because so many countries, it's almuerzo, but then it's not, but whatever. So then you have this really wonderful, delicious late lunch, very late lunch slash early dinner all together. You you don't want to miss it. You can't miss it. So you got four hours in the studio and it taught me how to really actually get down to the business of producing and not messing around in all of the different inboxes <laughs> and social media. Focusing on the creative work and mm-hmm. kind of the re, uh, I should say the active work rather than the reactive work. That and, and doing it in community because we all share a very large studio as well as there's outside space. And then you've got another meal and it's time to share what you're working on. And so that's when we would have creative practice talks, like artist talks. That's when we could problem solve even like, oh man, I hit a bump here and I don't really know how to do it. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm working on an oral history state, actually, yeah, statewide project. You know, I, I'm trying to figure out how this mural is going to work with it. And, and then to have a writer say like, well, okay, if you thought of it like a prologue or what is it the epilogue? Like, are you changing the position? So that I call it having the benefit of creative cross training. It's like going to a gym, <laughs> but for your creative heart and soul. And so that's dinner time. And then usually like the, if there's something to celebrate, there's always a reason to bring out some mezcal. <laughs> And then we're into the nighttime and it's like, choose your own safe, great, joyous adventure. And it just repeats every day, five days a week, with the exception of going to the international cafe around the corner, um, just to give Aurelia a break in the morning. And then two uh, sort of field trips out either quite a ways away or right in Oaxaca Central. Wow. Okay. That was a great real world example of the experience. It sounds really inspiring just to, yeah, you, you described the beginning of the day and getting exercise and you're, you know, two hours in and you haven't even hit the studio yet. And it's like, but it is important to, I think I have to forgive myself sometimes for, I'm using air quotes, slacking off, let's say by that, I might mean, you know, going out and taking a walk or just playing guitar or doing these things that aren't, creating the thing I need to create for that day. But also that space is necessary for creativity. You it know? recharges our creativity. It's That's a the thing. Yes. There's no, I don't know a way of just going, 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 going as if it's this unlimited reservoir that does not get refueled and refilled. 
I just don't know that that's possible. I think we have to be intentional in our choices and how we refill and also understand what truly is pouring into ourselves in good ways and what is unintentionally like drilling some holes and creating leaks. How long are these opportunities usually? I'm sure it spans. Oh, residencies. yeah. Yeah, they can be. I mean, the residencies I've done have been as short as a week which is hard for me. I mean, I, I'm not a digital nomad. I say I'm slowmatic, you know, cause I'm going for like two month increments at a time, a two month residency, I think would be a bit much for me. My sweet spot is one month and that's either like, it could be three weeks, could be five weeks, but it's somewhere, you know what I mean? It's somewhere in there. I have enough time to get there, land, catch my breath, get into the flow of the things, do the thing that I say I was going to do, especially residencies. I do want to, this was going to be the last and it's like, ooh, this is happening organically in the conversation. Pro tip, there's going to generally be a request slash requirement that you do what's called an artist talk or a talk about your practice. And I have noticed that people can get like panicked. I used to get panicked about it. And really it's just a share. Share what is in your heart and how you're evolving and maybe how the residency time has helped you move in some ways through what you were experimenting with before you arrived and landed and where you are now. And it could still be like, I have this question about XYZ or I'm at the beginning of. But my pro tip is to start on that talk before you actually even get the residency to start on the talk as one of the fundamental things. And I mean it in a draft sense before you even begin, I should say while you're researching residencies before you even apply. So like, let it be a guide of sorts to where are the better places where you would be able to live into this answer that you have for a question about your practice where you are right now. Okay, that's great. Thank you. We love pro tips and hacks here. So we've already given several examples of how being around people that are working in other mediums can directly benefit your career to have, like you said, a writer say, have you thought about this mural as a prologue? It's just like, it just kind of reframes it and somebody's taking some creative aspect of their world and making you think about it through their lens. And then it's just like, yes. Like creative fireworks can just start going off. It's a beautiful thing. Yes. It's part of the ways that I happen to be an outlier oral historian is because I I, I have so many other creative collaborators as a mandate for my projects. And, and I think it also just comes from this multidisciplinary background that I have in general and coming from a family of cultural workers. I'm always asking myself, how would a singer think about this? What about a dance choreographer? What about someone who's setting everything for the theatrical stage? What are different values and ethics and things that I have to be mindful of? But also, like, what's their creative approach? And the good thing about residencies is I don't have to like Mijan, Scooby-Doo this and imagine a solution. 
I get to actually just ask people, you know what I mean? And vice versa. I love that. And that's one of the most beautiful outcomes is I've had some of the greatest creative collaborators as new relationship starting points in residencies. Wow. So cool. <laughs> Your wheels yeah, are I turning. Just, I mean, I, there's so much great stuff here. To me, it's really fascinating how you've been able to weave in, um, this is art in itself, right? Like life as, as art, you've been able to kind of take, for example, these opportunities of artist residencies and, and fulfill some of your goals for work, but then also for travel. And we talked about you moving through the realms of oral history and art and media and so on. And just the, the way you've been able to craft your sort of your career and your, all these sort of overarching themes that come together in some magical way. It's just, to me, that is, um, being an artist with your life in a way you're, you're like painting your own can. It's really inspiring. (laughs) Thank you. It really is. I I think it's, (laughs) it's such a great thing along those lines, I guess, do you have any advice for anybody listening? That's looking to take, um, whatever their expertise, their skill set, or, or let's say a burgeoning skill set, anything like that, where it's like, you know what? I love that, you know, Mijan's been able to kind of work with the projects that excite her and, you sort of created this framework for that, for, for your business and your life, you know, not that there's like a step-by-step process, but what, what would you say to that person? That's like, Hey, I'm a little like confused. I, these things excite me, but I don't really know how to like tie it all together and package it up in a way for lack of a better term that, that can get me, you know, into opportunities or into certain circles or whatever, whatever the case is. I, do you get, understand the spirit of the question? Yes, yeah. yes, 100%. I think of it from the realm of like, uh, again, from my background of literacy, language acquisition, it's like, how do we start with the smallest chunk and scaffold from there? And so start in your own either virtual or lived uh, environment backyard. What do I mean by that? My first residency was not a residential residency. It was a a place that had, I think, three or four performances every single week and family programming that was educational art based. And they had open studio time for artist residents. And I was like, huh, I'm going to check this place out and see if it's a fit. And I don't even know if there was even a formal application. It was literally just voicing I'd love to be considered and then being connected with the founder of that artist residency who had a conversation. It was like, you're in. And that's how I had studio space for maybe two years. So going maybe like, let's just say, let's do actually a play pretend right now with Jason, Jason, the podcaster Uh extraordinaire. (laughs) Jason, who is going to get his first artist residency in Norway. Well, what do we need as a podcaster? We need space. We need quiet. We need a place where we can install equipment and set it up and take it down pretty quickly, right? And so I'm thinking that could be a library that has an insulated room. That could be an actual theater that does not hold any sort of um, lighting requirements for prep or uh, set design or anything like that. Maybe there are quiet times throughout the day 
five days a week that mesh with your schedule. I'm thinking about quiet places that are in the local community where you live. And that's where I would start first, just to see, like, do they have residency programs? And if they don't, do you know somebody who knows the director? (laughs) Ask right there. And then I would, like, I would do it in tandem with what are the dedicated residency programs that already exist that are smaller, more intimate in nature? And start there with your application process. Let them know who you are that you're super excited to know what the next application round, when that is, you want to, if they can give you the last application, um, if you notice it's not still living on the website. Uh, And then I want to make a plug also, because I notice like, again, there are folks seem to really gravitate to like the super romantic community-based residencies after they hear me talk about them. The places where we can get work done sometimes are not the most typical. And I'm going to give another example. There's a residency also that I did this year. I mean, so I've already, I'm like three, four residencies in at this point of the year, and it's only October, um, or not only October, year is almost over. I did almost a month in the wine country of Northern California at a place called In Cahoots. Don't you just love that name? in cahoots. And it's for printmakers. However, I had a writing residency. It's a farm. It's gorgeous. It's quiet. And because I was the writer in residence, I had my own living cabin, but also my own writing cabin. How dreamy is that? And all that's (laughs) just covered, right? I mean, you're not... Yes. Meals included too? No, no. No. So now that residency, the meals were not included. However, yes, you go. I mean, we had like one day a week, we would all go to happy hour together. (laughs) And then we did a field, we did maybe two or three field trips. We went to the beach was so gorgeous. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm like thinking about it again. Um, And what I want to say is we did meal runs. So we would go to the grocery store at least once a week, sometimes twice. And then we would go to like a restaurant run or a talk. Oh, the most amazing. I don't, I feel like bad saying it, but like literally the best shrimp tacos of my entire life exist in Petaluma, California. Oh, nice. (laughs) I just want to say that. (laughs) Nice. I lived at a campground in Petaluma once, but that's another story. (laughs) Get out of here. So I'm familiar with that area. Start small. That's the point. Start small. Take the micro step. Yeah. I think one of the advantages for, this this community, this listening audience, is that we're open to just having an experience. And so that means that might open you up to some places, like you said, when people hear you talk about this, they might think about the, you know, the very community-driven, sort of like really well-known, perhaps, or bigger artist residencies. But maybe for the traveler who's open-minded, who just wants to go and have an experience, the the farm residency in Nebraska or whatever... I'm just, you know, saying a random place that people might not be, you know, targeting. It's like might not be on their bucket list, but you can use these as a way to also go and have an ex- just have an experience somewhere that you normally wouldn't go, right? I mean, have you ended up at places where you just kind of like 
yeah, I, I mean, I'm just going here because this is an opportunity, but this is not necessarily a place I've wanted to visit, but then it turns out to be, you know, something special or, yeah, I'm just curious if you've had anything like that in, in your life or are you pretty selective at this point? You're just like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, well, I am selective at this point. You've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And though I am also, I all because I'm such a hyper curious person, I let that be front and center as well. And so there are times where I'm like, you know what, I'm just literally curious, like actually in cahoots, I'm like, I'm curious about what writer Mijan does with oral history projects of the past and sort of these speculative, because I've got this speculative future work. I was like, what happens when I live on a farm for a month? Like, how does that quiet work with me or not, you know? And will I feel like (laughs) so unhinged by it because I'm a big city girl? Or will I feel so nourished by it? What happens to my creative practice as a result of hanging out with printmakers? You know what I mean? When the day is done. And also seeing, because the printmakers have this huge red printmaking barn and the founder of the residency, Macy, she she was like, do you want me to give you a lesson? And I, I got a printmaking lesson while I was there. It's been like a dream for so long, you know? So, yeah, I let my curiosity just run wild. Why not? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What, what was the term you just said? The uh, Oh, speculative. Speculative future. Yeah. yeah what, what's that about? Mm-hmm. I mean, speculative fiction, right? Like, so Octavia Butler, big speculative fiction genius. It's, it's this uh, notion of world building. I mean, I, the way actually when you were describing like my creative approach to living, <laughs> which I do agree with 1 million percent, I feel like gets an opportunity to fully play when I'm in the realm of world building. I love ending every oral history interview that I conduct with my narrators, my interviewees, asking them to tell me, to gift me, to share their story of the future. Our, this interview is about like living and travel a speculative future. If I'm going to speculate on travel in the future for slow mads, I would be curious as an interviewer, like, what is that story of future for slow travel? How does the travel world change? And how do you as a person envision yourself changing? What is the world that you're actively building around that? Mm, Okay, It's kind of like that. With the oral history work, is it that you are going out and capturing these oral histories that have been passed down and documenting them so they don't get lost? Is that the... The projects that I do, like a good example, actually, yeah, I love giving the the answer through examples. So last year's very large oral, large scale oral history project was with PolicyLink, a national policy institute, and they commissioned me for the year to collect twenty oral histories of BIPOC, creative, cultural worker, uh, sovereign nation leaders. So all kinds of BIPOC leaders 
who all had committed their work and their lives to their community's positive change and transformation in pursuit of liberation for their peoples. So I did that up and down the state. And my thing is, you know, especially when I hear from narrators who have uh, their communities, their people come from um, historic harms that uh, have happened as a result of like treaties not being honored, things like that. I know that there's resistance because it's been voiced to me repeatedly of putting those oral histories, those recordings and the transcripts into federal or state government archives. And so I always, just from the very beginning of my oral history practice, especially working with undocumented and indigenous communities, I would say, okay, it is a disservice to collect all of this money through funding sources, create these large scale projects. And then the people who literally worked with me to contribute and create these projects can't even go to the repository, to the archive, because they don't have government issued identification. That's going to be a no go. What are other ways that we can archive these stories in a community accessible way? And so my wraparound approach to it has been, well, let's do it through the senses. Where are the places where you will see going to work as you walk or taking the train? Um, You know, what buses do you ride on? Like, can we do billboard campaigns? Um, And then that's how I wound up getting with always like as my main steady collaborators, I'm like, who are the DJs? How do we collaborate with them? Who are the people who are just throwing the best dinner parties? And that's how I got into story feast work, you know, with farms and urban art houses. Um, Who are the people who are the local muralists that are respected and work in very ethical and time sensitive ways because projects have to complete on time? Um, and saying, okay, if I turn edited oral histories over to you, just giving you clips, would you be able to paint this story for this community? And those have been some of my best, strongest projects. This one last year with Policy Link, you know, when I bumped into the thing about like, okay, it's not going to work for archiving it in a traditional repository. What about the public library? Like, what happens if these oral history sets? are available in the public library. Let me turn to the narrators and ask them what they think. And they're like, yes, I remember. And they've got the library stories like me being a little kid, you know, but their version. And it's how I wound up doing civic engagement work last year with the Oral History Project was because our libraries are these free resources where you get to drop in, you know? You're really, you're really listening to the oral historians and saying, okay, this is, this is, <laughs> this is where this mistrust is, is what we need and trying to make this accessible to everybody. I, I love this the spirit behind that. And that example and, and some of these interviews are just your work in general in, in oral history. How has that impacted your personal life hearing these stories? <laughs> Jason, what a big question. I know. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, no, don't be sorry. Let me think of the Yeah, the way that I can answer that, you know, there's the professional part that really actually grew me up. And thankfully, I've had some of the most generous, exciting, and, and even acclaimed narrators, interviewees who have been 
kind with my learning curve as I not just, you know, grew as an oral historian and an interviewer, but also just kind with one principal thing. I think this is what I'd like to hone in on the most. Last year's project was the first time where I always shared the story that influenced the, the oral history question that I was going to ask, which was a vulnerable question. And so it helped everybody who I sat in front of to say, okay, this woman is opening up to me. So now I can fully embrace the invitation to open up to her. And it also is a clever sort of strategy for helping the interviewee, the narrator, understand the story arc of sorts of the interview questions and the stories that I wish to elicit the most in that interview, as well as it just helps me be a better person. (laughs) Interviewing amazing people, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, look, this is why I'm still doing it for 10 years later. I get to talk to incredible (laughs) people like you. And I mean, I've, I've so enjoyed this conversation. We have to do this again. Can we do this again? Yes! Please, I would love yes, it. yes, yes. Why don't you share with everybody where do you want people to go to get in touch or find your work Connect. or you know, anything you want to share? I, okay, I consider Instagram to be an archive of the behind the scenes as well as the projects. And then, of course, I can't help myself from being a mama Instagram poster from time to time. So Instagram, LinkedIn is obviously the place to connect work-wise. If you have a work question or you're like, oh my God, (laughs) she does these kind of commissioned wild and creative projects, maybe we should collaborate. Um, And then just my website for anybody who has like a professional question, you know, I offer, there's some sort of a, I should know this, (laughs) but off the Yeah, just off the cuff, but there's a page on my website where I answer a lot of questions about how I got into what I do, sort of my thinking around graduate school programs, et cetera. Peruse that. If you have a bigger question that isn't answered on that page, truthfully, then feel free to just shoot me an email. My website is mijansili.com. You mentioned being a hyper-curious person. I was getting the sense for that right in the beginning of this. I love that about you and your willingness to share here and and just show up and provide so much value to everybody. So I, I truly appreciate it. We'll link to all of the things we mentioned and some just some wonderful stuff here. So I, I look forward to the day we get to chat again. I hope we can stay in touch. Yes, I do too. Thank you for the invite. I really loved this conversation. I loved your questions. Thank you. There you have it. Thanks to Majan for stopping by the show. Loved that conversation. And it was so cool for me to hear about this new opportunity, this new way to travel that I'm certainly filing away as a potential future experience I might want to have. Really cool stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. And I wanted to leave you with this quote I mentioned at the top, this fill-in-the-blank quote in just a moment. First quick reminder, zerototravel.com slash newsletter. If you're not signed up over there, go sign up so you don't miss any of the goodies off the podcast. And uh, thanks once again for being a part of this listening community. Get in touch if you have any feedback, guest recommendations, and the like. I will leave you with this quote now from Vincent Van Gogh, who said, If you hear a voice within you say you cannot paint, then by all means paint, 
and that voice will be silenced. Now, you can guess what word you can sub out and fill in the blank with. If you just remove the word paint with whatever thing you want to do, if you hear a voice within say, you can't travel, you can't play music, you can't whatever, then by all means, do that thing. And that voice will be silenced because it can't help to be. And, you know, simple quote, but powerful message and powerful exercise. So if there's anything that hits you in the gut... When when I say that, you're like, oh, this thing jumped to mind. I would sub in that word. Then uh, by all means, do that thing. Try it out. See if you can silence that inner critic that we all have. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much for being a part of this listening community. And I will see you next time. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.